Well, hey, everybody, and welcome back to Ghouls in the House. I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And I'm Natalie Latovsky. And we currently have plans for four episodes of Ghouls in the House, taking us through probably the summer and maybe even into the fall, depending on how quickly we turn them out. So, Yowza. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff, most of which we've already watched. <laughs> Hopefully we'll remember them by the time we talk about them. I think so. At least the titles. Anyway, we're we're kind of moving into a little subset of episodes. We had had this idea of a few movies we wanted to talk about. It kind of grew into something that we're planning ahead for several episodes worth, all of which have certain uh, thematic or behind-the-scenes connections. And when we get to them, uh, you'll know what those are, and many of you will probably already figure it out once you see a couple of the movies. But then, while we were watching other stuff, we wound up falling into watching the 2009 and 2010 remakes of Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, two franchises that I think either or both of us like quite a bit, mm -hmm. um, or at least have had quite a history with, and uh, at least either or both of us had never really seen or paid attention to the remakes so we decided when we watched the one, I think you put on the Friday 13th one and it was like, and then I said, now's the time maybe <laughs> where you should finally see the Nightmare remake because I'd seen it once. I mean, I had not seen either, but yeah, it kind of started because last week we ha actually had a Friday the 13th and at least as of recording time mm -hmm. and we thought, well, let's put on a Friday the 13th movie because they're always that. streaming. We do it a lot. We too. do it a lot. I mean, and, I spent all my, like, fandom childhood watching the Halloween movies, but really gotten comfortable with watching a lot of the Friday 13th stuff with mm -hmm. you. So, yeah, we're looking for one to put on, and we always see them streaming, and then lo and behold, when an actual Friday the 13th rolls around, they've all been, like, corralled and put behind a little wall for Spectrum, whatever that is. Some yeah, kind of Spectrum? cable provider, I think, just gobbled them up. And it's not like we don't own the entire box set of all of them. I would have assumed they would have been on Paramount but Plus. Yet but they're not. They're not. It's weird. So for the day itself, we ended up putting on Friday the 13th, the uncut version from the box set that I, we own. I have the lovely Scream Factory box set. But so. in the week kind of leading up to Friday the 13th, literally the only Friday the 13th we found streaming was the remake. And both of us kind of said, well, we've never seen it. Should we take the plunge? I probably saw clips, but I don't think I ever sat through the whole thing. Yeah. And I only ever saw, and then we followed that with, I said, well, here's a good episode we can do. We can just jump into because you'd never seen the Nightmare on Elm Street remake made by the same people, more or less. And I'd seen it once. And as I told you in advance, I had some issues with the way they decided to like, double down on some stuff about freddy and it's well anyway we'll talk about both of these <laughs> we're gonna get there but what's interesting too is we're gonna talk about both of these both of which followed one year after the other and are actually two great examples of a period in horror film history that we have actually touched upon in past episodes here and there without ever really addressing how it's part of a larger narrative. Mm. Like a lot of the stuff we've been doing, and I definitely have some I still want to do. Well, I mean, there are plenty of them. Uh, we've looked at a lot of movies during the slasher boom of the 80s. and But what we haven't spent a lot of time with, which is now itself becoming a moment in history, because now it's like 15 to 20 years ago, is the slasher revival of the early 2000s that was in part sparked by these very remakes. These weren't the first, but I actually looked up some stuff to give us a little historical context here because it's all part of a bunch of stuff that was happening, including movies you and I have already talked about or seen. Mm -hmm. But it's all largely the responsibility of Platinum Dunes, which was a production company set up by Michael Bay and some partners to do low-budget films. That alone should immediately raise up a red flag. <laughs> But it was Michael Bay who started Platinum Dunes. And one of the first things they did, in fact, the first movie they produced was they got the rights to Texas Chainsaw and did the Texas Chainsaw remake that came out in 2003, directed by Marcus Nispel, who wound up also directing the Friday 13th we watched. 
that that remake as well. Big I'm board. building the big board in my head now with the red strings that yes. connect all the pictures. So in other words, Texas Chainsaw, <laughs> that did well. They followed up Texas Chainsaw with Amityville Horror in 2005. They did a Texas Chainsaw follow-up, which I think is a prequel at the beginning, almost immediately. Then they did a remake of The Hitcher, which I'm sure nobody was asking for. That's uh, I didn't even know there was a remake of The Hitcher until you just said it right now. Here's the amazing thing is we've... so. Okay, so they did that. Then they did uh, Friday the 13th, which we're going to talk about, and A Nightmare on Elm Street. And then they did The Purge as an original. Mm -hmm. But then that itself led to multiple sequels. Basically, once we get into the 2010s, pretty much, they have now become the Purge and Quiet Place company. That is literally just about all they do now is Purge movies and Quiet Place movies. And 2010 was pretty much the end of that run of doing remakes. What's interesting is that as the company that more or less spawned the revival of the slasher in the 2000s, they then inspired other companies to do a ton of remakes, some of which we've talked about tangentially or otherwise. The My Bloody Valentine one, uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween movies, which the less said the better, uh, a number of other, The Hills Have Eyes in 2006, all the William Castle stuff, like uh, you know, the, the revival of Thirteen Ghosts, House of Wax, House on Haunted Hill was actually before that, but it kind of rode in on that, and a number of others that I didn't even know. Like there's a remake of Sorority something or other. Is <laughs> Sorority? I don't know. I'm going to pitch a script called Sorority something, something or other. other. <laughs> right. And there was a town that dreaded sundown in 2014. There's so in other words. This is all part of Dawn of the Dead, 2004's Dawn of the Dead, which granted, you know, starts to go a little further afield because most of these seem to be slasher remakes, Mm -hmm. this particular run. But it then inspired other people to say, can we revive everything? And I remember at the time, a lot of the problem a lot of us had with it, or some of us anyway, was the idea that in remaking these, they were sanitizing a lot of stuff and bringing it down to like PG-13 or whatever. But that's not really the case. A lot of these were R movies. Certainly Rob Zombies are crazy over the top, but not good. And this one, these were R. And although there was this perception that a lot of this had a different temperament than the movies from the 80s, Mm. a lot of these were, for the 2000s anyway, as full bore as they could be, So this is all part of a phenomenon, and we decided to go through and watch these two one after the other, which came out one after the other, some of the same people involved behind the scenes. And I think just to start off, I think we felt pretty clearly with both of them that they're really, really underwhelming movies. Very much so. And the thing is, for me, I think the thing I noticed kind of right off the bat is that when they were remaking these movies and i would argue really realistically most of these remakes if not all they forget which things about the original film were the things that were so interesting or that most of the time yeah that people actually liked they just think right off the bat well It's the slasher part, right? You've already got this, like, icon. You've got this Jason. You've got this Freddy. And, like, better get into it. Like, let's get right to it. And it really causes the storytelling to suffer. And I I say that loosely because, honestly, there's not much storytelling. In either of these. In either of these. Her son, Jason... He came back. He was actually there. He watched his mom being beheaded. Okay. I don't remember if I've ever said this in detail. Probably when we did the Halloween stuff back in Doctor of the Dead. We did Mm. a whole run of Halloween episodes. All of which are still available on atvpublishing.com. You can listen to all those. But this is one of the main things that gets me about the Rob Zombie movies, and I'll just take a minute on this. <laughs> I mean, I've never I've never been shy about saying I think they're just absolutely deplorable films for a variety of reasons. But here's the thing, like, he always said he was a fan of the original. 
he once did an interview famously where they asked him like what would you do in the future and everything i forget if somebody asked him directly but his whole thing was i would never remake halloween because i wouldn't want to presume and then they backed the truck of money up and he was like sure i'll do it except that he always claimed he was someone who loved those movies and therefore you would think understands what makes michael myers work and then proceeded to do everything in his movies that was in direct opposition to the very ways in which the michael myers character works mm -hmm. over explaining his background making him into like an abused kid doing a ridiculous things that didn't make any sense it's like if you're gonna do that make your own movie because right. you made something different and in this case you're right they have these incredible iconic characters and they kind of felt i feel like we don't really need to do anything then yeah. but then they also took away elements of those characters that make those characters work so i mean i guess we'll we'll start in on friday the 13th because that's the first one that yeah. we watched and chronologically it's it it's, was the first it of was the two. first yeah and it's funny you sort of you bring up rob zombie and it's like this friday the 13th movie almost felt more like a remake of house of a thousand corpses oh. than it was a remake of friday the 13th and that's another thing i'll say from the start as we're jumping as we're heading mm -hmm. into the one specific is that we discovered while watching these that it it became clearer to me that this was also the era that was starting to really uh, deeply revel in the idea of the killing as cruelty mm -hmm. for entertainment purposes that we've talked about as one of our lines in the sand for when things don't work for us. And we could see it all over these, especially the Friday the 13th. Yes. And it did not feel like a Friday the 13th movie. And as we've said before... You can also talk all you want about how that in and of itself is probably problematic. Like, we love watching these movies as long as the killing isn't emotionally impactful. It's like, yeah, that's true. There are issues with that. But the fact of the matter is, that's how those movies work. They're almost really like live-action cartoons. Yeah, and, and it's not even that, like, we have a problem if the killing is emotionally impactful. It's that neither of us are interested in watching movies that involve torture. Yeah. And that in and of itself is a subgenre of horror. And for some people, that is a cathartic experience. Mm -hmm. They enjoy watching those movies. You know, I'm not trying to pass judgment if that's what it is that you want to see in your horror. It's just for both of us. I pass a little judgment. <laughs> well. <laughs> but I understand what you mean. I can. It's sort of like we've talked before about how horror movies in particular kind of provide you with a, a safe experience yes. for exploring fears and anxieties and then kind of putting them away as the right. lights come up. Right? right. Right. So for some people that might work in like a horror movie that involves torture in some way that that might be the right catharsis. Now, I'll pass a little judgment if it's getting you off. Like, that's, I think, where our line gets particularly drawn. Well, and we've said before, we, we, it bothers us when you see very clearly that the filmmakers themselves are sort of marketing the film based on the idea that you're going to enjoy these kills or you're going to really love how gory yeah. and crazy. And it's like, it gets to a point where it's like, it's not, that's not really about the story or the, the movie experience anymore. It's that you know they're enjoying that part. Yeah. And that, yeah. And and this one has a lot of that, where every kill is something that takes time, that demonstrates that the person is suffering, begging for help, you know, over a prolonged period of time. Mm-hmm. Help me! Please help me! Lawrence! No, 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 you can't go out there. We have to help him. No, we can't, okay? He's using your friend as bait. He wants us to go out there. Yeah, I mean, it tries in a way, right? Like, they weren't exactly trying to remake Friday the 13th. They sort of created this pastiche of one through four. Okay, so... And, like, jumbled them together as, yeah. like, an homage film and then created a new plot that involved elements of these four movies. Well, 
let's step back and just do our little again you know we always say full spoilers at this point if you're listening I mean, to our show right we're not going to um, tell you to watch these anyway <laughs> so no i wouldn't recommend either one of them um but anyway the the opening of the film pre-credits is itself a compressed basically the whole thing is a compressed thing where they took elements of the first four friday the 13th and stirred them up and and did that so you kind of go from sackhead jason to hockey mask jason certain killing scenes and plot elements are borrowed from the first four movies plus mrs Voorhees is just like a campfire story yeah it starts it off the movie begins with a flashback to 1980 anchoring it in roughly the same timeline mm-hmm. and showing us the death of uh you know pamela Voorhees. Played, by the way, for all of like two minutes by Nana Visitor from Deep Space Nine, which I find interesting and also sad. And and then jumping into a sequence that basically is like a compressed version of a Friday the 13th movie in which we're introduced to an entire group of kids who are then immediately killed off, except for one. And then the, the title card comes up, <laughs> like Friday the 13th, which almost kind of felt to me at that moment like, yeah, this is what you want, right? You know, all the camp counselors murdered. And it's like, no, not quite like that. I wanted more. And then after the title, we get a whole nother group. And then the movie kind of starts. So so they've already done sort of like two compressed flashbacks and se- and like previous movie sequences. Mm-hmm. And then they jump into the movie and they weave in things like the Friday 13th 4 plot about the guy looking for his sister or is that the three? I'm starting to look. No, that's no, it's four. four. It's four, that's right? Four. He comes looking for the his element sister. of three is like a group of friends on vacation yeah. in someone's family members, like yeah, and we you get know, like cottage. her head and and uh, some other stuff of like a subterranean place, kind of little like his hangout in two and the sackhead thing from two. Um, but mm. but anyway, that part is the the guy looking for his sister is taken on by Jared. Padalecki from Supernatural, who was already on Supernatural, and so that's like a cool horror connection for people who are fans of that. He just broods his way through the whole thing, just brooding, brooding, brooding. The risk of losing Supernatural people, I don't see the appeal necessarily. He seems to have one look, but it works, I guess, for this. And then an incredibly annoying rich kid who seems to simultaneously want to have a group of friends at his palatial estate slash cabin. And then also doesn't want any of them to touch anything or use anything. I mean, that's the other thing is we've watched all of the Friday 13th multiple times. Most of the originals at least have a couple characters and including the final girl who are characters you can wind up liking or empathizing with or even really liking. I can't think of a single person in this movie that I found remotely interesting or someone to cheer for. I mean, I wasn't in favor of the girl being held prisoner like the sister i'd like to see her get out of there but also we don't get to know her we don't get to know any of them at all so and and most of them are annoying dickish characters they're caricatures right like they just they compile a whole bunch of archetypes several times over they compile some archetypes in our pre-credits like camp out yeah then they compile a whole new group of archetypes yeah and toss them in for the story itself but none of them even really have like names in my head i can't tell you a single name of there's any of the just people. like were there rich, names there's rich jerk there's stoner guy there's hey padalecki was called clay do you remember him being called clay i, I remember don't. him having a brooding stare yeah. and a motorcycle he did have a motorcycle and a lot of flyers and Yes, he did a lot of fires. That man spent a lot at Kinko's, is what I'm saying. There's also no Ralph, which is very disappointing. We did get a very mean old lady at her door with a dog. Yeah, who Um, almost seemed more like Halloween 6 Cult of Thorn. Well, that's the other thing, too, is one of the things we talked about about this is that this one also felt more like the Crystal Lake community seemed almost more like it had been moved southwest into like texas chainsaw territory very much it didn't feel like new jersey or like a crystal lake (laughs) area it felt more like like rob zombies hillbilly land and they filmed it in texas i think yeah which would explain why it doesn't look like it's new jersey right and it just 
I know, I'm finding myself at a loss. Okay, so Jason. Jason isn't all that different, really. I mean, the fact is, Jason changes a lot over the course of the series. Sometimes he's slow, sometimes he's fast. He was never quite as slow and methodical as Michael. Um, He teleports all over the place throughout the series, so that's fine. This Jason in particular, played by Jason Mears, is... Oh, I'm sorry, not Jason, Jason, but Derek Mears. I'm sorry, Derek Mears is about on par with some of the look and style of many other Jasons of the past. Except he's not really Jason because Jason is just sort of like a force. Yeah. (laughs) And this Jason is like a thinking, like, character. Like, it's he's more character than creature. Which is why it feels very much in, like, Texas Chainsaw, Hills Have Eyes, Wrong Turn kind of territory. Well, probably in one of the biggest parts of that, he's kidna- He's captured someone and is keeping her. He's captured someone, he's keeping her chained up, but not only that, when he thinks, like, oh, I heard a noise, or he sees somebody's backpack get left behind, the first thing he does is walk over to, like, a switchboard and flick on floodlights. And it's like, that is such a human thing to do. It's a good point. And Jason has never been in the past portrayed really as being human. He's almost always been creature more so than human. I guess I should revise my comment of saying that visually and in terms of some body language, Mm -hmm. he still looks very much like a Jason. But you're right. In terms of most of his behavior and the way he's depicted as a character... He's not really Jason Voorhees as we know him from the series. He's a human recluse who is murdering people for revenge, but is distinctly different from Jason. We're in very much hillbilly horror territory here. And again, the murders are all... Some of them are based on previously memorable ones. Some of them not so much. But all of them almost to a scene are drawn out to make the cruelty uh very palpable uh even the point of like having one character get an axe in the back and then we have to sit for a few minutes listen to him begging them to come help him and we see somebody get his foot clamped in a uh what is it bear trap yes and another thing that i remember coming up while we were watching it was Remember that one of the things we talked about, about very much disliking in the latest Scream, Mm -hmm. was how much that movie, once again, leaned into the cruelty with everything. And it occurred to me how so much of that really began back at this point in time. And there's even a kill scene in this, in which a character gets stabbed slowly through the neck, exactly like they did the Wes Hicks scene in Scream judy's son Mm -hmm. and i thought oh my god that's where that came from it's like they're not they're remaking which you know again as far as scream is concerned meta stuff they're now remaking these remakes they're remaking an era that we have no reference points for because we didn't watch any of it nor do we appreciate yeah it's It's a weird space to be in yeah but basically this movie was just an assemblage of torturous kills done for sport and no plot really no and just the threadbare thing of padalecki's character is looking for his sister and then finds her and then we end with a typical oh jason's back you know and the other interesting thing about it that i mentioned before we started was and i i don't remember if they ever said it or if it was just what reviewers or people at the time were talking about i can't remember but i have this memory that this movie was in part sort of pitched as not necessarily a remake that granted it goes over a lot of territory that may not necessarily match but then again the series itself wasn't ironclad in terms of continuity but you could conceivably construe this as being just the latest one Mm-hmm. in some ways i mean granted we already just said like jason doesn't match but again throw continuity out the window anyway since pamela Voorhees is shown to have died in 1980 
or is killed in 1980. Right. That fits. And although he kind of gets a, a sack head and the mask back again, there's nothing to say he didn't lose him, get him back. I it guess. it could be, but it also doesn't much matter one way or the other, really. I mean, I think it says a lot that they never did a follow up. Well, yeah, and it did take a while because if I remember right, Victor Miller's lawsuit, which, by the way, was finally settled. He now has uh, reclaimed his copyright in the script for the first Friday 13th, which, as far as I'm concerned, with the lawsuit being settled, to me, just makes it seem even less likely now that they'll do another one. Because if they have to do another, they're going to have to talk to him. They want to do another one. Which they should have been doing all along. Yeah, but now they're definitely not going to want to make that deal. Watch, tomorrow they'll announce the next. (laughs) But but if I remember right, he filed the lawsuit initially in 2016. So it was a while Mm -hmm. after this one, which just goes to show it wasn't a lawsuit that shut things down completely. They couldn't figure out how to make this work anymore. And after this one, they pretty much buried Jason possibly permanently, which... You know, we've had, what, 47 of them by now? You know, you don't need another one. Look, there's a lot of them. Once you send your monster into space. (laughs) Which is a fun one. Like, where do you go from there? Time travel. Time time travel, yes, right. (laughs) Yes, if you you go the the stab movie route. Jason Voorhees is in the Old West. That's what I... Can you imagine a scene... Of Jason standing out there like a gunfighter scene. And he's just standing there. The Kane Hodder Jason. So he's breathing. Doesn't understand what the town looks like. And a guy thinks he's going to have a gunfight with him. Now I want to see that movie. Okay. I want Jason in the Old West now. (laughs) That would be fun. In any case, we don't need another one of these no. Jasons. It, it was just... I don't know. Is there anything else to say? We really haven't said much, but I don't know what there is to say. It, it It isn't good. There's no plot. There's no character development. There really isn't any suspense to any of it. They There's a think woman there is. burned alive in a sleeping bag just screaming constantly. And that's before the opening credits. And that's while somebody is caught in the bear trap wishing he could help her and can't. Double cruelty. Just awful just awful it's an awful movie all right that's enough of that i think so it's an awful movie and therefore the same team said great let's do another (laughs) and the thing is we say that but you know this movie did pretty well it it exceeded box office certainly for the previous friday 13th which had been going downhill it was the second highest grossing film in the franchise by the time it was done with its opening weekend uh, the Grudge, it actually best three day weekend opening of any horror film at that point. It so it had a drop, but it was doing well. But I guess money wise and and other there are other reasons why they didn't follow it up. But they did follow it up uh, thematically in a sense by continuing their run of remakes, which led to 2010 picking up the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise next. And whereas the team that worked on Friday 13th decided, let's do this pastiche of the first four movies and elements of, Mm. this one was much more a straightforward remake of the original Nightmare on Elm Street, retelling the origin of Freddy Krueger and starting fresh with a group of kids, including a Nancy, who would wind up facing this creature. And there had been talk at the time, and he certainly would have been happy, But Robert Englund was not asked to come back, of course, because they wanted to put their own stamp on it. So for the first and only time so far, uh, they recast Freddy with Jackie Earl Haley, who had also recently done Watchmen. So it's kind of like you're watching Rorschach in Freddy's hat and sweater. I'm real. Jackie Earl Haley can be a great actor, and, and, and I think his Rorschach is brilliant, and I think Watchmen is excellent. But his Freddy Krueger is an amalgam of bad choices. Yeah. uh, From a bad redesign of the makeup to a bad choice to CGI smooth bits of it. And 
a bad decision from him and whoever else is involved in basically turning the voice and the performance into something that almost sounds like he's not all there and like not threatening quite in the same way because he doesn't sound like he knows what's going on. Suddenly it occurs to me what it is. It's like Voldemort. <laughs> yes, he does have a lot of that. Yeah, in Both in look, but also the sound kind of. Like just the Voldemort that lives on the back of the guy's head in the first Harry Potter <laughs> movie. The like not quite fully formed, like mm-hmm. evil, squishy, talky face thing. And it's like, that's kind of what they did here, kind of. Now we've rewatched the original Nightmare a few times. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think you said, but I always get the impression that you like that. And, and some of the other ones, I never got into the Nightmare on Elm Street series all that much and didn't care for him. But you couldn't not see them or be aware of them. If you're like a horror right. fan growing up in the 80s and 90s, you saw all this stuff. I saw all of them at one point or another. I like more of the movies in the Friday the 13th mm-hmm. franchise than I do the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise but also i'm just sort of very much team west craven and his creations okay. and it kind of his his take on the teen experience works for me okay so that first one in particular yeah i mean i i certainly there's no denying it's a modern horror classic i don't rate it as highly as i do some of the other franchises but i've also become more comfortable revisiting it mainly with you mm. and so it's all the more glaring how wrong this gets nearly yes. everything. I mean, the thing is, one thing I think we talked about while we were watching it, this one did feel like it had slightly more effort being put into trying to get things right that were important to get right. Like, I think one of the things you liked the most was the lighting and and visuals in this yeah. were kind of interesting. Yeah, whenever they would go into a dream state, the lighting would shift and then you'd get a lot of that red and green like light touches and it was sort of almost like a tunnel vision where the edges kind of get like that vignette look Mm -hmm. to it. I enjoyed that. I also enjoyed the fact that they did sort of do their best to keep a lot of the musical themes they keep the theme popping up from time to time. Which oh. they, they failed to do in Friday the 13th. There's like the barest hint of the Jason motif in the Friday the 13th movie. Which almost just like, it's such a hint that it sounds like somebody accidentally coughed like <laughs> while they were recording rather than putting the track in. And the behind the scenes stuff says they like specifically got Manfredini's score and everything. It's like, well, you didn't do anything with it. So what's they just the... looked at it. Ah, they didn't so even listen to did. it. They just looked at the paper. and like, That was nice. Yeah, that's one of the things we said about that one too. The music sounded like a zombie yeah. movie. So I mean, the the soundscape was there in a sense. There were some interesting lighting choices. Mm-hmm. They tried to tell a linear story. Yeah, like they tried to sort of start with one strange thing happened, mm-hmm. and then another strange thing. It's talk about the happening really it's like it's got a happening feel to it and they recreated more of the things you were gonna expect right like the like flying around the bedroom scene Mm -hmm. they were in the boiler room kind of stuff they had stuff in this that very much felt like yeah that's the the body bag being dragged through the school hallway so i mean they they tried to have those little touches the problem well there were several problems but the main problem is the same thing that I talked about with the Scream remake, actually, which is you don't get to know these characters at all. You know, you get a little bit more of a glimpse into who they are a little bit by the end of it, but you don't actually understand them as a group, as like a friend unit. Because they did the thing where they're like, oh, well, people are going to want to just launch right in. We all know what's coming. It's Freddy. Right. So in the opening scene, they just like kill someone in his dreams in public and just like it just happens. And they just forgot about character building and storytelling. 
in a way that you would see in something like Halloween, where you have the group of friends and they're all talking together and joking around. And in essence, what you have in the original Nightmare on Elm Street, because it, it starts with all the kids going to school, chatting with each other, having a rough day at school, going to a sleepover party. Ultimately, isn't this our number one critique of most of these movies? That yeah. They seem to lack the ability to introduce you to characters. Yeah. And I don't know what magic recipe that is, but you can point to movies that show you in five, ten minutes that you understand the people you're looking at. And then movies like these where you never get to know them. And it's, I don't know, sometimes it's just a line of dialogue. Sometimes it's just a look. But you you need to know the people before they start getting killed. That's the important part. Or else it's just really difficult to have any kind of attachment to them in a way that makes you emotionally invested as a viewer. And it's completely lacking. And in fact, when they take this version darker than the original, which is, I guess, sort of, as you've explained based on interviews and things, a little closer to what Wes Craven was going to do with the original before it got dialed back. So right. in the original... What they have is that Kruger was a child murderer and the parents hunted him down. And that was that. In this one, they dance around it quite a bit. Dance, dance, dance. Till the final, like, third of the movie, they finally start to kind of hint that it wasn't that he was a child murderer. It's that he was a child molester and a torturer. That he was physically and quite likely sexually assaulting children. Right. However. And that's what Craven apparently originally intended to do. Yeah. I mean, which is like a horrific origin for a villain in this. But they also never actually say it. And there are some things very clear, though. It's very clear, but it's also they don't make it clear enough, in my opinion. And I'm not saying it's a choice I would advocate for. Like, I'm not sure it's what I want. But if you're going to commit to telling a story, tell the story. And it's like this wink and nod to say, like, you know how terrible he is, right? Mm -hmm. Right. But. It does a disservice to the topic by also then implying that that's still something that shouldn't be talked about. I, I I also think it just adds more unnecessary and unwelcome horror mm. to a character that is still problematic anyway, regardless of how direct we do. I mean, like it's still like like documentaries we've seen, including ones about these very movies by the people involved are wrestling now regularly with the fact that Freddy Krueger became like a rock star in, in, for a good 10, 15 years there and 20, I don't know. And like, there was like stuff that kids were buying, like Freddy Krueger stuff. And it's like, all right, that's a whole other conversation is like, is that, you know, warranted? Is that something we want culturally? That's, but it's whether, whether you agree with it or not, the mm. fact is, a character that was quite clearly, at least in the original, shown to be a child murderer, became one of the most popular pop pop culture icons in toy aisles and in stores during that time. And then you make this one and you go all the way in that direction. And I just feel like it's like you already got this character who is that icon. This is already a problem. Mm. You're making it worse. And for no good benefit, because it's not a well-told story. It's not making a statement. It also crashes against something I've always had a problem with about Freddy anyway, that we've talked about before, which is I've never understood that at the core of the whole Freddy series is this guy is, however you want to say it. I mean, frankly, I felt like we always kind of knew in the original movies, not really just a child murderer. It just seems like the movies didn't want to deal with it at all. But it's like he's he's a killer of kids and yet gets to come back and be even more powerful and deadly and enjoy an afterlife of endless power and control over his victims and never get killed because he's never going to go away. What universe is this 
that is allowing this. Well, here's the thing. And here's the way I've always seen it from the original film. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the parts where it really just fails to hit the mark in this remake. Okay. Is that to me, the crux of the idea in the film, as it was originally made, is that children are forced to pay for the sins of their parents. Right. And it's something that societally we all deal with as well. Like the subsequent generations always have to deal with the state of the world that was created for them by the generation before. It's very poignant. It's something that lends itself well to that sort of surrealist storytelling that they do in the film that sort of meshing together of reality and dreams of especially the first movie, not really knowing was the entire movie a dream? Is it a dream that's still going? Was there any reality in it? And ultimately the idea is that Freddy Krueger is almost sort of this golem. Like he's created because the parents hunted him down. That if he had just been turned over and gone through the court system, like maybe this wouldn't have existed. Now, so, do I believe this? <laughs> but I mean, so that means that like one of the one of the themes of the Nightmare on Elm Street series is let the legal system work, <laughs> and which is a topic for probably like a whole that's a whole other podcast. But but you're saying like it's the parents that created him, basically. Like his yeah. power comes from the vigilante rage mm. that they all drummed up. They gave in to their own instinct to kill in some way. And by doing that, created this sort of essentially dream demon. Like, mm -hmm. it's not even necessarily oh, like it's him. No, he's like some sort he's, of demon. Yeah, a demon that's kind of been imbued with it's that. Demon lizard monster. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's to me where his power okay. comes from. But also the reason that people sort of latched on to him over time is part of how they created the character from the start, which is to be very like quippy and kind of like goofy. Like well, he's not like the, the dark shadowy, like nebulous thing that creeps around corners and under the bed. He's like, well, also, He's not quite there even until three. Yeah. And I feel like I feel like you can credit most of the success of the character to Robert Englund mm -hmm. and his performance and somehow managing to take what's got to be one of the most loathsome characters in that era of horror and make him a really fun guy <laughs> that, that you want to see come back. And that's the thing that worked was that he's quippy and yeah. fun. And Rockstar, again, there's like one of those eras, too, where like you were going to see him turn up in music videos. And that's one of the things we said about this is that they they wanted to go darker, obviously. So you got to take the Rockstar element you out gotta of it. You got to take the Rockstar element out. Because he can't him, be fun and quippy and also molesting children. He's skin crawlingly creepy and loathsome. I'm your boyfriend now. But then they start having them quip toward the end. Like they thought they earned it and they didn't. It's like they got almost all the way to the end and they were like, oh crap, he hasn't done a quip yet. Yeah. Like write, write a quip. Somebody do some quips. He does have a line that's not a quip when he says your memories are what fuels me in terms of like where he's getting his power from, by the way, this one. Yeah. But then you already said that like this misses the mark. I mean, obviously in a lot of ways, but it's not the same Freddy in any way, really. Except a couple of the visuals and, you know. Yeah, and the problem here, too, is that, well, yes, there is an element of the children being punished for the sins of their parents because the parents still in this version did hunt him down. However, there were atrocities committed against this very same group of children by this person in life and now he's torturing them again from beyond the grave he's re-traumatizing and yes. then killing them and you could also argue the parents also abuse their children by trying to basically wipe their memories of this entire and i feel like even in past nightmare on street movies where you yeah. occasionally got that running thing of like the parents are trying to drug the kids so that they don't 
it feels like that also goes so far in this that none of the parents are blameless in also continuing to traumatize their own children. Mm -hmm. Like nobody here is doing the right thing. Yeah. And then the like final act somehow like Nancy gets it into her head like a la the ring that what they actually have to do is free his spirit or something because actually he must not have actually done anything wrong and the parents killed oh, an innocent man. That's right. I forgot about how it's this weird like twist where they actually want the audience to believe for a while that maybe they got it wrong. Yeah, and then they find his torture dungeon and it's like, oh, no, 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 the, the parents were right and the, this guy was a creep and there's like a whole stack of Polaroids of little baby Nancy that the audience doesn't see. And her compatriot carefully flips through every single one and looks at every single Polaroid of Nancy being tortured. And that is like, oh, these are of you. And then hands them to Nancy. Like, I mean, I get that they haven't slept for days at this point. Maybe judgment is off. But that to me was one of the most like casually callous things yeah. you could do. Like, uh, in case you don't remember, here's photographic proof of you being abused as a child. I'll and, just wait in the other room. And you know, you were saying from the beginning of this how a lot of these remakes incorrectly like coast on the audience expectation of mm. everything we already know. And it's a weird and completely worthless choice in terms of storytelling to coast in on this and say, you all know Freddy, and then dare to actually try to make us question it later in the movie by saying, yeah, but maybe this time he was okay. Nah, he was really that. He was actually and even worse than you thought. He was huh? worse than anything. You were, and it's like, why even that didn't do anything? To, like, it doesn't add suspense it, it actually tortures these characters more to think that somehow they were they should bear some of the guilt for their parents killing an innocent man when really he genuinely is the abusive monster that it's just this is a terrible, terrible movie. It's very bad. It's very, very bad. It has bad CGI. It has exceptionally it has, bad. It also had like these are very petty concerns now, but like. <laughs> We're, I, we're getting to the bottom of the list. I, yeah, it's a shame that this is one that actually has an Epper in it. We we have we've been we've been uh, um, we've been on Epper watch for a while. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. But there is an Epper in this, a Richard Epper. Uh, but even like little things, like the movie threw me out as soon as she went on Gigablast, the search engine. And here's the fascinating thing: it's like all these weird things. Like there was a certain period of time in the early 2000s where it seemed like everybody wanted to use fake internet stuff so that they didn't have to pay for things or do partnerships i remember for instance when doctor who came back i can't remember what it was but there was a running thing in the early new doctor who where everybody was shown doing like a certain kind of search engine that they made up all the stuff like mm -hmm. the fake websites and everything this one has gigablast which i found out is a real genuine open source search engine that this guy created and then refused to ever sell off so it's real it still exists but by being what it is, did not require them to make any licensing agreement with like a Google or a Yahoo or anything like that. But it also means it doesn't feel like a real world, although it's Nightmare on Elm Street. So I guess that makes sense, too. Oh, okay. But uh, that's a minor quibble in, <laughs> in what's really a, a deeply troubling and very poor remake. One of the most, I think, laughable scenes is they do... Obviously, their remake homage to the iconic bathtub scene, where in the original, it's like an actual scene where she's like trying to stay awake in the tub and there's a whole to do and and then the hand comes up. She gets in the tub, falls asleep immediately. Audience sees the hand reach up and it's like, OK, like, oh, that's, th the that's it. It just jumps right in. That's the other thing is that we they know that sleeping is the thing and then they proceed Nancy proceeds to choose every option that could conceivably put her into a nice deep slumber. Why would like, you not take a cold shower? Like a nice warm soothing bath, go on a ride with the guy at night and just let the movement of the car <laughs> let you drift off to sleep. <laughs> and and then they also they tried something. They thought they came up with something cool this time. They came up with the micro nap thing. The idea that if you're awake long enough, you will slip into sleep without even realizing it, which Sounds clever, but really is just the writer saying, we give up. 
this way we can just do anything and there will never have to be a reason because you can just say micronap and that's what happens. They can just sort of blur the lines between reality and dreamscape at any time. Although they telegraph it to the audience because every time they're asleep, the lighting changes. So it's like the thing I like about the lighting being different. It also means that there's no, like when a micro nap happens, you, the audience know it immediately because the lighting shifts. So that blurring of reality and dream isn't really blurred for the audience. Only the character, which is like a weird imaginary construct. So it just doesn't, they tried harder. They tried harder with this one and it still doesn't work. Um, So I guess points for trying, they get like one point on my little point sheet for like an interesting Pied Piper reference in the middle of it when like they're trying to come to terms with what's going on because that is a sort of a nice little like allegory to throw in there. But meh. It did very poorly critically. I mean, I think everybody, I think a lot of people cited all the things that we cited. It's also interesting, too, that England apparently gave his support to the reboot. But then later, uh, the Wikipedia page notes that uh, he then disliked it, saying that it suffered because of uh, from ineffective makeup effects and a lack of empathetic characters. And I'm thinking that sounds about right. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> Credit to Mr. England, who understands how a horror franchise is supposed to work. Says the man who played the child-killing demon for years. I mean, effectively. (laughs) It sounds like no shade to England. But, you know, if that is the guy who's like, oh, the empathy in this is just so lacking. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie B. Latofsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NBLatofsky. That's NBLit of Sky. And Arnold at Doctor of the Dead. That's me. Our movies this episode were Friday the 13th, 2009, and Nightmare on Elm Street, 2010. Tag. You're it. Rules in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com.